need some motivation on your Chinese business endeavor, may be curious about what the Chinese business environment is all about, or want to laugh out loud listening to war stories on the ground in China, then this is your show, China Business Cast. Welcome to the China Business Cast. I'm your host, Simon de Raad. Today I'm going to talk about shopping online on platforms like Taobao, Tmall for non-Chinese speakers. My guest is Jay Thornhill. Jay has been running Bao Pals for the last few years and he's doing quite well actually. And that's why also I would be very interested to share his story with you all. About 12 years ago, he came to Shanghai. Originally, he's a filmmaker, but entering China uh, as an English speaker, it's much easier to start get started as an English teacher. So that's how he started with the plan to be here for one year, as many of us and ended up staying. Um, China had much more for him to offer, to, to learn and to grow himself. And he always dreamed about running his own business. So after running a boutique consulting company that later has been acquired uh, by uh, Ivy League English, he started his China dream, his China dream with two of his friends. And together in 2015, they've been building a solution tailored to foreigners to shop on Taobao. Taobao is like the main B2C platform for Chinese based in China. And it's quite challenging for foreigners to shop there because everything is built for Chinese. Also the look and feel, the way how to use it, communication, etc. So they had a need to buy stuff online on this platform and they've made a service out of it. They've built the tech, they built the team. So in the last four years, They've been running really well. They sold millions of items. They're running millions of RMBs in revenue. And they've grown from a startup to a more mature company. So I think it's very interesting to learn from him on how to build a successful business from a startup into a more mature company. Hope you enjoy. Let's tune in with my conversation with Jay. All right, cool. Jay, thank you for having me in your house. <laughs> yeah, welcome to my, my office, this little <laughs> corner of the house. <laughs> it's really cool. This is, I love this area in Shanghai. This is, uh, you just walk out of your home and you have anything. Yeah, it is really nice, actually. I've lived all around Shanghai and, you know, in 12 years, I've moved a bunch of times. Um, this is my first time living in the heart of the French concession. And I realize how peaceful it can be compared to other parts of Shanghai. You know, you got the trees everywhere and little parks here and there. It's very, very quiet. Um, so it's great for my, my dog. Um, so yeah, it's a nice area. Yeah, French concession is awesome. So yesterday you were in an event in Hangzhou, right? Yeah. This is the first time of you being out. You just told me while we're walking on this on the way. Right. Um, how, how was it? It was it was a lot of fun. You know, it was good to be speaking in front of a, a large crowd again. Yeah, first time since you know before 2020, before all the craziness. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was good. It was a good chance to tell the Baopao story, and that makes me reflect on you know the roller coaster ride that we've been on the past four years, and try to condense it in a way that that makes sense, and also you know share some lessons learned. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Just, yeah, just the event, it was about uh, Nihub, it was more for starters, right? Startups. Yeah, so, um, right, so it was, uh, it was an opening ceremony of their new um, kind of accelerator slash co-working space. Um, and so they've got a, a nice office that's supported by the Hangzhou government. And uh, the Hangzhou government wants them to encourage foreign entrepreneurs. 
And so they're able to provide, you know, incentives like uh, heavily subsidized office space or free office space, uh, free company registration, um, and potentially grants as well for certain types of startups. So uh, they invited uh, 10 startups to come and pitch and, and the top three pitches um, earned, you know, monetary rewards. Um, and so it was, a, yeah, it was a cool event, a cool group of people who were all in China kind of trying to pursue a dream. Um, and some of them have been, you know, at this, at this dream of theirs for several years. Some of them are just starting it now as a response to, you know, the changes in the world, uh, this year. So it's kind of cool to get a glimpse of what other people are doing and then, you know, hopefully, uh, inspire or help them think it through uh, in different ways. Yeah, what a lot of people don't know is that a lot of these subsidies are also available for foreigners. They want to do uh, entrepreneurial stuff or just uh, have their projects that need support. There's, uh, not only in Hangzhou, but in many cities, you have these free rental places where it's just heavily subsidized just to be able to inspire people because all the big companies mm -hmm. come from small. Yeah, I kind of wish, uh, well, I don't really wish this, but yeah, I love Shanghai, right? And I think Shanghai is you know, the only place in, in China that I would really want to live. It's just a city that, that I've grown to love. Um, and it's so international and the lifestyle here is a lot of fun. But when I go out to Hangzhou or, or other like tier two cities, I realize, man, we could have saved a lot of money with the type of government support. I mean, we've spent so much money on office spaces, you know, not anymore now that we're all remote. Um, but yeah, there, there's definitely some strong incentives. Um, and, and it's made me think that if I were starting again, or if I were going back in time, uh, I would look at getting out of Shanghai potentially and, and building up the company in one of the cities where there's more support. Yeah, that makes sense. You mentioned already that the people that were pitching or chasing their China dream. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm very, I think this is really one of the best two words to describe what's happening in China is people chasing their China dream. Mm -hmm. Not just yeah. Chinese or foreigners. Everyone is trying to get themselves and their family to the next level. And the opportunities are there. So their energy level is there. Their, their willingness mm -hmm. to fail is there. So I think it's really... It's not anymore the American dream, I'm sorry to say. It's the oh, China dream, at least uh, maybe know, I'm biased right now after so many years. I, I, I can agree, though, because I think uh, a lot of that comes from whether or not people are optimistic for their future, right? And I think that in China, because they've seen steady growth in the economy, they've seen, you know, what happens when you, you start allowing people to set up their own businesses, grow their own companies, um, and, and really encourage entrepreneurship, Right in China, it's it's still relatively new. I mean, it's been it's been decades now, but uh, you've seen China completely transform. Right, um, first with the special economic zones um, under Deng Xiaoping, and, and Shanghai was one of those. Right, um, and and just the improvement in people's livelihoods here has been so dramatic from one generation to the next that I think it I think it has given them. A lot of hope and a lot of belief that hey, uh, if I work hard and I, you know, follow a, a, a the right path, whatever that may be, you know, um, then my life will get better and I can build a, a good future for my family as well. So um, I think I think that's still very strong in China and the work ethic as well. I mean, it's hammered into children here that they've got to compete, they've got to work hard, and sometimes you know they they might overdo it. You could say, but I, I think. In America, you know, and, and I could, we could go on forever about this, but just in short, in America, I think what's happened is a lot of people have lost faith in the system. 
Um, and, you know, they've lost faith in education. A lot of children think that, you know, it's better to it's better to be cool and slack off than it is to study hard. Right. They don't really equate studying hard and working hard with making a better life for yourself because that's not as fun. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah. And, and I think a lot of foreigners have ended up coming over here for entrepreneurship, you know, in order to say, you know what, I'm just going to go there. There, It feels like there's opportunity there and I'm going to see what happens. That's kind of what my co-founders yeah. and I did too. That, because that, I looked up in your story, that's actually exactly what you did mm -hmm. about 12 years ago. You're just looking for your own uh, company or your own entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial journey to start, yeah. right? I had no idea I would ever work in e-commerce, you know, that's for sure. So when, when did you came to China? When did you come? So I, I came uh, shortly after I graduated university in 2007. Um, and I was a film major. Um, and, uh, you know, I also minored in video game design and business. And, um, and I was living in LA, you know, I went to USC, which is a great film school. And so I, I was considering getting into Hollywood um, and maybe trying to be a, a film editor. Um, but instead I thought, you know what, I just want to take a year and just go someplace new and just see another part of the world and, and then take it from there. And I thought, okay, I'll do one year in China because there's a lot happening over there and that's about as different as I could get maybe culturally. Um, and then I thought, uh, after that, I'll, you know, do one year in Europe, maybe Spain, because my Spanish is pretty good. And then maybe one year in South America, get my Spanish really fluent and then go back to LA and then start my real adult life. Um, and I was just going to teach English because as an American, that's the easiest job you can get and travel around the world. Uh, but after one year in Shanghai, I just thought, you know, there's a lot more here than I've experienced so far. Um, and I found that I could go freelance and work for myself. And that just became kind of my first dream was I want to work independently, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, I want to work for myself as long as I can. And, uh, and, you know, I wasn't necessarily thinking I'll start a business, but if I can just make money and kind of play by my rules, then that's good enough, you know, and one year led to two years, led to three years and just kept evolving from there. Yeah. It changed you to financial freedom, I would say. That's uh, what I hear a lot about the millennial generation as well. And, uh, not that we're in the millennial generation <laughs> anymore. I guess, I guess I'm on the tail end, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. too. Yeah. So, um, yeah, then basically, few, 2015 and 16, you kind of teamed up with two of your friends to start this adventure with Baupaus, right? Yeah, so, um, right, I'd already been living here for, you know, about eight years, um, and I had moved into a, a new building, uh, one of the high-rises in Shanghai, one of the many, um, and I became really good friends with my neighbors who lived above me. Um, <clears throat> that's Charlie and Tyler. And... Uh, we, we didn't think that we would work together. You know, we just hung out all the time as friends. Um, and then uh, in the summer of 2015, Charlie started talking about wanting to make a business. And every good business uh, typically starts with a problem that it's trying to solve, right? And so the problem that uh, he said we should try to solve was the Taobao problem. Um, and the Taobao problem was that we'd been living in China for years and we and almost everyone in China shops on Taobao. It's, it's, you know, by far the dominant online shopping platform in China. You can get everything you want at the best, most competitive prices uh, delivered to your door in a day or two. Um, and and uh, every time we wanted to buy something, we would ask our Chinese friends and they would always say, get it on Taobao. And then we say, well, can you help me buy it? Can you order that for me? Because 
you know, language obviously was a huge gap. We can't read or write Chinese. Um, we don't know how to communicate with the sellers. We don't know how to navigate the website. I mean, the whole user experience and interface has been designed for Chinese shoppers only and, and hasn't been adjusted for any other market because that is their entire market. It's 1.4 billion people almost. Um, and, and we wanted access to that, yeah. right? And we couldn't believe that no one had created a solution to this problem. No one had made it easy for foreigners like us to shop online in China. Um, and so the more we talked about it, the more we researched and thought about what would we want, you know, for ourselves, right? How could we solve our own problem here? Um, and looking into, you know, the technology and what was possible, we realized, oh my God, like, you know, we might actually be able to do this. Let's just figure out the tech. And if it's, if it's possible, then we go for it. And, um, and one of our co-founders, Tyler, he's a tech guy. So he was looking into the tech. He told us it's possible. And the next day, Charlie turned in his, his notice at work. <laughs> and then he comes home from work after just quitting his job. And he's like, all right, we ready to do this? And Tyler's like, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure. <laughs> um, and, uh, but fortunately, you know, we just kept digging and, you know, once well, all three of us, uh, you know, quit our jobs, we got on board fully not long after we started to see that we could build it. Um, and we just built it in their apartment. Um, and we didn't have much money. We didn't have institutional investors. We weren't part of a, an accelerator or, or, you know, really in the startup community. We were just three pretty poor guys um, working, you know, day in and day and night, uh, seven days a week. Uh, to try to build the first version of the platform because we knew if we could just get it there and people would be able to find what they wanted and shop and buy it and that you know our team could could process the order for them and then communicate if there was any issue with them so that they, a foreigner who knows no Chinese could shop independently online in China. We knew if we could do that, uh, that we had something, right? And uh, that took us about six months to build you know, the first version. And it was held together by duct tape, man. It was so buggy. It was designed by, by, uh, by me and mostly just copying elements of walmart.com and amazon.com, changing the colors here and there. And, and, and Charlie and I, uh, built, you know, we, we had to categorize thousands and thousands of searches in order to build our own departments, our own categories, um, which have since evolved into like 55 departments or more now. Um, meanwhile, TJ was writing all the code live. We had no like test server or anything. So when we wanted to update the website, we just updated it like uh -huh. live for all users, which, you know, you don't do no. <laughs> um, because that can cause crashes. So it was mayhem. But the thing is, it was because it was it was solving a problem that nobody else had solved. Our early users were so forgiving. They were just happy that somebody was finally addressing this need, which you know, for that niche market, the expats in China was it was a huge need, and um, and it allowed us to just launch as quickly as we could, start making money, and, and then go from there. So during these six months, you were already live, or it was no. We it took us um, it took us until March first, twenty sixteen. So it was it was July twenty fifteen when the idea, you know, the seed was was kind of born. Um, and then we started actually like designing and coding and writing the website um, and, and like the official WeChat uh, around the fall, you know, September, October. So it took us about six months before we finally like launched it officially, March 1st, 2016. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, because I see a lot of the a lot of foreigners were uh, just having a great product or a great service targeted at foreigners in China. 
but a lot of them are not managing to reach a certain scale and get the message out. How did you guys right. manage to, to reach that? Um, the yeah. point, more or less. Well, I think, you know, we, I'd still say that our user base is relatively small for, for an online business. And we've had, uh, we're approaching 70,000 registered users. Um, but the reason why uh, you could say we have scale is because every user is so active because on our platform, you can buy almost anything you can think of, whether it's furnishing your home, buying your groceries, getting some electronics gadgets or gifts, or even, you know, we even saw a pirate ship available for sale. You, mm. you, could, you could buy a plane. You could, uh, you know, you, you can buy any crazy thing you can think of, um, services as well. Um, because it covers pretty much every aspect of life or, or even business, um, that means that once people start using our platform, it's now their go-to for shopping uh, for anything, right? So highly active user base, you know, the average user has made like 60 orders or bought 60 items on the platform. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, we didn't, it didn't become like that immediately though. It was gradual. Um, in the beginning, we just told our friends, then they told their friends and word started spreading mostly through WeChat, right? Because WeChat is so foundational here as far as spreading awareness uh, about anything, including a new business. Um, and we started with our official WeChat service account from the very beginning. Um, that's why we didn't make an app because, you know, if you have a if you have a mobile friendly website, you can just hook it up through a WeChat account and you know have live chat, customer service, and up and create a custom menu. And then it's like using an app. And people, majority of our customers, prefer to pay with WeChat too, so they're already in it. Um, and then that allowed us to do content. You know, so we publish articles every week through WeChat that gets shared. Uh, and the word just gets around. But even so, <clears throat> in the first few weeks, we were just getting a few orders per day. Mm. And every time we got an order, you know, us and our two employees, <laughs> we'd stop what we were doing and check it out and be like, who is this person? And, uh, you know, why are they shopping with us? How do they know us? And we just kind of look them up on like LinkedIn because um, we were so we were so you know, amazed that, that it was starting to happen. And then about three weeks in after launch, uh, we started getting expat press. You know, there, there were articles popping up saying this new platform translates Taobao into English, or this platform has opened the gates to Taobao for foreigners. And from there, we just jumped up, you know, from like five to 10 orders a day to 30 to 40 orders a day, a month later, like 60 orders a day. And uh, to the point, you know, I mean, down the road now we're, we're doing like four to 5,000 items every day. But, um, we went from, you know, the three of us, uh, when we launched in that apartment with one Chinese employee to handle anything that required, you know, really fluent Chinese, um, to having like 16 employees working in the two bedroom apartment. We had to throw away the beds, throw away the, the sofa, and the TV, oh, wow. um, Charlie and TJ had to move out. So they rented the apartment across the hall. Um, and it was really like a family, um, and it was an extremely exciting time, you know, and, and it became a company really fast so that before the end of the first year, you know, we, we had a, a massive office, uh, space. We, we had, uh, 25 staff, um, and we were kind of defining all of our roles and processes on the go. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was chaotic, but it was really fun. So I can imagine that the early stages definitely is, it's exciting and it's new and, and, the, and especially when you see the progress going, then, then it's very easy to stay excited. But now you're already four years in. Mm -hmm. So how do, you, how do you keep that going? Because the space is evolving continuously, yeah. especially in China. 
Yeah, I mean, for sure. I don't think we'll really be able to match that excitement ever, right? Like you, you like to think that your company is different, that your startup is always going to be that close-knit family vibe, very flat, you know, no hierarchy. Because in that, in that first year, that's how it was. You know, we all had lunch together as a team. We cooked in the apartment. We, we, we drank beers together as a team. We danced. We, we had parties. We, it was really, really fun. Um, but eventually, you know, you have, to, you have to evolve and you have to grow. So now with about 40 people on the team, we have to have some level of management, um, and you just can't have that tight relationship with everybody. But um, in order to, to maintain a fun work environment, you know, because we want to like our jobs and my co-founders and, and me. So um, we always wanted to have a really cool workspace. So we went from the apartment to an office space. But after a year in a, in a like a typical office building, we moved out and we found a house and, and we moved into a three story house. We got a pool table, a ping pong table. Um, we had our dogs, you know, in the office with us. Um, and after a year in that house, we moved to another house, slightly bigger. Um, and that that allowed it to be a, a more friendly vibe and to sort of stay like a cozy environment and feel and not not start feeling too corporate. But still, at the end of the day, like, you know, we 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 had a hierarchy in the house sort of visually because my co-founders and I were on the top floor and then we had, you know, our tech team uh, with us and then, then content and, and operations manager and, and then the operations, right? And so you start to have that separation where you're not interacting with, yeah. uh, with everybody all the time. Um, and also too, as, as a foreign boss with a mostly Chinese staff, um, there's going to be some nervousness around you, right? Whether it's the language or culture gap, um, or just the fact that you're the boss. And this is a culture where hierarchy is taken very seriously. Yeah. And as much as I would like my staff to be totally at ease, joking around, even making fun of me if they feel like it, yeah. that's just not something that is really done. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, we still have a great team and they work hard and, you know, we, they're very independent, very self-managed, and, and we've also built systems that, you know, incentivize them and track w what they're doing properly and reward them for good work. Um, and so the culture is not as free-flowing and, and exciting maybe as it used to be, but um, it's, it's stable, there's job security, there's good benefits, um, and I think, and, and because of that, we've had very, very little turnover mm -hmm. for the past couple of years. Yeah, because, you know, you're, you're I mean, foreigners itself already is a big group of different cultures. <laughs> it's not just already one culture. And then you have China, which also contains multiple cultures inside China. So do you find that, I assume that for you, most of the Chinese will be uh, facing the suppliers and the supply chain, and then the foreigners probably most likely the customer facing and maybe some marketing and some blog posts, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. That's my assumption. So yeah, you're, you're not far off at all. Um, Right now, about, I think over two-thirds of our team is Chinese now, um, and that's because the largest, you know, business unit is the operations. And so operations means uh, monitoring every single order, making sure that, uh, that sellers are shipping out timely, that people are buying from reliable sellers, any communication needed, whether we spot a potential issue or a seller contacts um, we're always there to communicate between the seller and the customer. We also communicate with the delivery guys. We track down orders on behalf of customers. Um, 
And so that team needs to be bilingual, actually. We, we used to have, you know, uh, foreigners communicating with customers and then passing their requests to their Chinese colleagues. That was kind of the model because that's how it started with, yeah. you know, with Charlie and, and, and I actually doing customer service all the time and then communicating with our couple of Chinese staff to understand the process and how we're going to help. Um, but it's much more efficient if you have a, a staff that are bilingual um, and, you know, they're well-trained on dealing with Western customers because the expectations are, are different. Um, and so they can communicate much more efficiently with the seller and the, the shopper at the same time. Um, and so we do have a couple bilingual foreign staff who are in the operations as well. Um, but for the most part, the operations is Chinese. They're doing all the service, all the order processing. Um, and then, yeah, content team uh, is, is foreign because we want that voice, you know, that and that cultural reference as well um, to make good content, which is kind of a breath of fresh air in China. There's not much content made just for foreigners, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and done well. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're quite happy with that. And then our tech team is is mixed Chinese and foreign as well, which is really a must for us because you have to understand what's going on on mm-hmm. on the Chinese platforms that we connect with. Um, and then you also need to have a good understanding of the, our customer experience and what we're trying to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what was the biggest gap to overcome with working with these multicultural teams? Yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. when People in, in America and, and in much of the West, when they talk about diversity, I find it's often very surface level. You know, d- diversity to them just means, you know, mix up the races and the genders and, and the sexual orientation and that's it. And then you have a group of really different people. But in my experience, you can have a group of extremely similar people, very little diversity if you have a group of like mixed race, mixed gender, mixed sexual orientation Americans, right? That there's very little diversity across, uh, you know, in a single nation. It just feels like that if you're always in that one place. Um, But you come to China and you realize that, that you can have far more uh, in common, you know, with, with people from a Western country than you do say with Chinese, right? Even if, you know, and, and it just, it just really depends, right? So, um, what often happens in companies that have foreign staff and Chinese staff is that the Chinese staff stick together and the foreign staff stick together. And there's not much bonding across those groups, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, we we kind of learned that you can't dictate company culture. You know, I, I used to like teach company culture back when I was in education and I would teach like, you know, you got to have your vision, your mission, your mantras and you've got your like above, you got your iceberg above the water is what you can see and below the waters you can't see. And I would teach these models. I've never used any of that stuff with my own company because what we find is that the culture is just something that emerges naturally. And, and you know, it starts, I think it, it comes from the top down, but it also, it, it, it spreads from the type of people that you hire um, and, and the nature of the work and the incentives that you put in place. What kind of behavior do you encourage, right? Um, and, and also, too, what, what example do you set, um, you know, at every level of leadership, right? What's your attitude? Um, and probably the best advice that, that I could give is just don't be an asshole. I'm sorry if I – can I use that? Later? Yeah, of course. Okay. So, yeah, just don't be an asshole. Um, and, and people – you know, and when people feel like you know, you're not being an asshole, then the pressure doesn't – you don't have unnecessary pressure. You know, they know that you've got their back, that you're out to, to help them, not to make them feel bad. Um, and then I think it, it becomes easier for everybody to work together despite their cultural, <clears throat> excuse me, despite their cultural differences. Um, 
And other than that, you know, really it's just make a good environment, treat everybody fairly, you know, make it a meritocracy. Don't give favor to anyone because of what's on their CV or, or, you know, maybe how bold they are or, or, or how loud they, you know, their wheel squeaks, right? Um, treat everybody fairly, try to make it transparent, you know, why, why people are in the position they're in and why they earn what they earn. Um, and uh, that serves us pretty well. Yeah, it's, it's tough. I mean, uh, I also had it where I, we were with three, we went to 20. And at some point, uh, you cannot continue running it the same way anymore. Mm-hmm. You have to start putting procedures in place. You cannot, it, cannot, it has to be less personal in a, in a way, uh, which is actually was one of the values to actually get things going, right? I, I've got the feeling that you had that same kind of path yeah. where you have like, want to have a family kind of feeling, but at some point you also have to let, Go, let your kids go. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and we also learned that it's, it's, you, there are a lot of benefits if you allow people to rise up into senior roles out of those base positions, right? So instead of bringing in an outsider and saying, okay, this impressive stranger is now going to be your supervisor, is going to be your manager, and they're going to show you what's what. People, people have less trust and less respect for somebody who's coming in without the shared experience in the company, right? So we've been able to, um, you know, let people stand out, you know, from those entry-level positions and they earn the respect of their peers. Um, And also allow, we've allowed, um, you know, Chinese staff to move into um, managerial roles. And, And there are a lot of advantages to having a Chinese person manage a mostly Chinese team. The, the communication is just far more out in the open um, when people can use their first language and also communicate with somebody they feel they have a lot in common with. Yeah. So, so when I look to the, at the e-commerce space, which you, you are in, there are obviously some dominant players when it comes to, but you can tell there are like two kind of uh, developments. There's a platform-based which are, is where we know Amazon, eBay, Alibaba, uh, JD, all these kind of, and you have the social selling, which is much more on um, video with, with uh, TikTok, Douyin, and Pinduoduo, and Toutiao, mm-hmm. all these kind of channels. But basically, they're also conversion channels. Right. Is, that, is that something that you're also looking at because you're, ta- you're very closely connected to Taobao, to Alibaba? Are you looking at mm-hmm. other ways to offer similar products via different channels with a filter layer? Um, yeah, well, the, the idea of social shopping has always been really interesting to us. Um, you know, it was actually years ago that we started thinking about, you know, how is shopping becoming more social? What's it going to be like for this generation that's come up with social networks and um, that's very used to sharing and, and being influencing, influenced by each other and influencing each other? Um, and so, yeah, we started planning some social features a, a couple of years ago um, and we launched a section of our website. Um, yeah, over a year ago called Discover so that we could encourage that type of behavior. And so um, to, to kind of make it briefly explain what Discover is, there's a community which kind of is like a forum where people can say like, hey, help me find this or that, or does anyone have any recommendations? They can really talk about whatever they want, um, but you know, it tends to be about shopping. And so uh, that way our users can help each other um, and communicate with each other. Um, I've seen even people on there saying like anybody else feeling sad because of the virus. Like, <clears throat> so it's just a bit of the, the, the expat community in China is pretty tight knit and supportive because we're, we're all fish out of water yeah. here. Um, there's also like collections, which are like, you know, wish lists, but you can make them public and, and, and people spend time building a collection of a certain type of product. 
You can browse all the reviews and search and filter reviews and upvote and downvote. And people actually earn commissions now from this activity. So, you know, if somebody asks the community, can someone recommend uh, this type of product and somebody recommends one and that person buys it, well, the person who recommended it gets commission, right? That's already there. That's all. Yeah, that's working now. Um, And, uh, and if somebody, and you know, for every purchase that you made that you review, you instantly get one RMB. So you have Baopao influencers already. Yeah, in a way we do. uh, (laughs) Right. I've seen some people gaming the system. I've seen, you know, there's a, there's a group of ladies. I won't call them out. I don't really know who they are. I just know their usernames when I see them. But I noticed that they, this, this group of friends, they follow each other. And whenever one of them reviews, all of them jump to upvote it immediately. So it starts trending because, you know, we have a whole trending section too called What's Hot, where you can see, you know, what are the most popular reviews this week, the most popular products and sellers this week. Um, And, you know, and that's great. I mean, we we like that activity because the, because one of the things that we know foreign shoppers want is they want to find reliable products that they can trust in China. That's one of the big gaps that we've been trying to fill is that, okay, great, you've got a billion products, but these are Chinese brands, Chinese sellers. I don't know what the quality standards are. I, and, and also, too, I don't know what the sizes are for some of these clothes. I want to know what foreigners like me are buying and what they recommend. And, and that will create that trust, right? And so <clears throat> we built a lot of these features on our own site to do that. But we aren't looking at kind of going outside of our platform uh, and finding KOLs and saying, okay, well, you've got a lot of followers, so now we're going to you know, throw money at you to recommend stuff. Now, we, we like it when uh, you know, our own users uh, kind of generate the content and, and help each other out because they, they're the ones actually buying the stuff, you know? they, so they know what's good and what's not. We just got to find the right ways to incentivize you know, that kind of behavior that makes the platform better and, and encourages shopping. Because it's Xiaohongshu, like Red App, they have sort of a similar ecosystem itself where they yeah. have social blogging, which is not related to selling and connecting directly the, the link to the store. Mm-hmm. And they have the store itself. So you also have integrated this basically where people can have, where you create a community with followers, where they can inspire each other and advise each other on certain products and how to use them. And yeah, I think I think um, Xiaohongshu... They, they started out that way, the social way, yeah, right? Exactly. And, and I think the problem that they've faced has been that people find the stuff they want and then they go buy it on, an, on their competitor's yeah. platform. Um, and I've seen other companies in the West try that too, like Fancy. Uh, you know, it's a cool looking website, very social and got a lot of celebrities on there, raised a lot of money and barely sells anything because people are sharing products but nobody's buying them, you know, yeah. they're overpriced and, and people just aren't going there to shop. They're just going there to look at cool stuff or get inspired. Um, whereas we started with the core shopping in place, you know, this is the, this is in our mind, you know, the best way for us to shop in China and we've got all the products. So now we can build social on top of that, where it's like, here's how you can filter down to the type of products that you want to find and get a personal connection to create that sort of trust. Mm-hmm. So for people that, because the foreigners in China, they keep conversing. I mean, people stay here for a few years, then go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Chinese living everywhere all over the world. It's still, everyone always thinks back, oh, it was so convenient to shop on Taobao. I've now moved back to whatever country they are, but not, no longer in China. Is there any services that you're offering to, to them? Right. So yeah, we, we get contacted by customers pretty frequently saying, 
you know, I've left China now I'm in, I'm in the U S or I'm back in Australia, um, wherever. Can I still shop on Baopals? You know, can I, I, but I notice I can't put in my shipping address. What's going on? So we know that there's, there's that demand. Um, and we've had the dream of opening up international service for a very long time. Um, and I don't, I don't want to, you know, like officially announce a, like a, a timeline or anything like that. But I will say that we have narrowed down to how we want to do it. We've started, we've already designed how we want it to be. And we've started writing code for international service. So it's a very exciting time for us. Right. And, and I think the, you know, the, the COVID-19, the way the borders closed here, it, it sort of motivated us even more so to get moving on this because, Foreigners aren't allowed into China right now. We're not sure when they'll even open up, right? So that's cut off our our pipeline of new customers, um, and and also just doing test orders. You know, we've been we've been uh, testing this out and buying things from uh, the Chinese platforms and having them shipped to our families in Australia and in the U.S. Um, and having a great experience with it. And then we you know we tell them back home like, so this is the product. This is how much it cost, and this is how much the shipping was. And they're like. Yeah, I would totally do this. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't mind waiting uh, ten to you know twenty days for the shipping, um, but this is half the price that I would pay at a store here. I've never heard of this brand, but it's really good. So we know that it works. We know that it can be competitive. Um, it's just a matter of building it and making it fit within our business model. And we're close. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm pretty confident that we will be able to launch it in in some degree this year, um, and maybe do more than that as yeah. well. Because that's it's sort of like competing with with AliExpress in a way, right? In a way, you know, AliExpress is also part of the same ecosystem, yeah, exactly. right? It's run by Alibaba, um, and we actually have communicated with people at AliExpress in the past, and we we thought about working with AliExpress to go international as opposed to you know taking Taobao um, and Tmall, um, but we found that. Uh, that it just didn't, we couldn't offer the same sort of benefits if we were doing that. AliExpress is already catered to the international shopper. So there's not much that we would add on top of that, you know? Um, and, and I think with AliExpress, well, it, it, it's a good platform. It's doing very well, but it, it still has trust issues, yeah. you know, because, I mean, you, you don't know if the reviews you're seeing there are, are legitimate, right? And, 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 It's just kind of the, the, the sellers communicate directly with the buyers. So you don't have a middleman who's kind of got your back, right? The way we operate where it's like, all right, like we're, we're helping bring you the best products. We're helping filter it for you. And we've got your, we've got the service covered for you. And so we're going to hold to a single standard of, you know, high quality service. Um, and Taobao also just has far more products available. Yeah. And now, you know, with more and more of these products Um, able to ship overseas with overseas shipping getting a bit cheaper, getting a bit faster. Um, and also, too, the fact that we have this customer base here in China of foreigners that are reviewing products. You know, they're living here. They, they know what products are good. Um, we've got a, a great resource, right? Um, and so when, for, when overseas shoppers come to our platform and they have no experience with China, they can rely on the foreigners who live here using the same platform Um, and what they recommend. And so, again, it, it helps to bridge that gap in trust. Yeah. Well, AliExpress there was full of full of issues when it comes to cross-border shipments, um, mm. also in the communication side, and that's basically still your niche. Yeah, that's kind of, you know, the biggest part of what our team does is communication, is, yeah. is to provide reliable service and to make customers feel, you know, like somebody's looking out for them. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, even companies in China, but also in the West too. It's I'm always shocked when you know I reach out to a business. Um, whether I send them an email or what and tell them that I want to, I want to, you know, buy their product, like, uh, whether it's like, you know, I want to, I want to buy some gold. I want to invest. And I never hear back. It's shocking to me the the standards, you know, it's like nobody wants to make money. Um, Mm. but our team is well-trained to respond like very, very quickly. We're, we're on top of it every day because, Mm. you know, we're, we're 365 days a year, um, on this. Um, and, and so we want to make sure that when we go international, we go slowly, we maintain a high quality of service and we'll have a lot to learn. I'm sure we'll run into all kinds of problems with logistics, with, you know, import issues. So, um, we're going to take it slow, you know, we're going to learn, we're going to kind of build new processes, tweak things here and there and, um, and hopefully start to be a, a competitive platform, you know, globally, at least to, to the countries that we feel confident in. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So the beginning of this year, 2020, is normally also, I would say, low season. The, the peak season for you is coming where probably 11-11 is going to be standing out. Mm-hmm. So how, how is these, how is the, can you describe the singles day for you as a, as a shopping event? Is it also for yeah. foreigners? Is it for you the big day as well? Or? Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Because we're, you know, we're directly connected with Alibaba's platforms and JD as well, we're updating in real time. So whenever a seller on their platforms has a sale... That uh, means we get the sale too. You know, the prices drop uh, for us as well. So it's uh, these sales. You know, eleven eleven is by far the biggest. There's also twelve twelve. There's um, there's six one eight, which is JD's anniversary. But you know, Taobao gets <laughs> gets on board with that as well. Um, and also, we do our own sale for our anniversary in March. Um, but yeah, peak season for us is definitely uh, the fall season through Christmas shopping season. Um, and so, you know, we see we see a lull during Chinese New Year when, you know, everything shuts down. We see a lull in July, usually when foreigners go on holidays, although not this year. Nobody's traveling. So this year, summer is actually quite all right for us. Um, but, yeah, usually we things start picking up in September when a new school year is starting. A lot of foreigners are coming in. Um, and then October, you, we actually get a really good marketing boost from Halloween because yeah. we have a big Halloween department, makes it really easy to get all your costumes and supplies. And foreigners around China, you know, want to celebrate Halloween and they're asking, where do I get stuff? Well, China is, you know, the Halloween manufacturer of the world. Yeah. They make everything and it's so cheap. Um, and so that drives a lot of people to the site that goes right into 1111 um and that's really kicking off christmas shopping too which is which is huge um so yeah we we definitely take advantage of that and you know when 1111 comes we have staff working uh longer shifts and they they you know they obviously get paid overtime it's it's kind of a celebration for our company um usually you know my co-founders and i we're we're, the day before 11-11, we just stay in the office all the way through the day and night until about 2 in the morning just to make sure when it kicks off at midnight, the servers don't break and the, you know, the orders are going through yeah. and nothing's breaking on the Taobao side yeah. either. Um, and then you know we go home, we sleep, we come back at like 8 a.m. We stay till 1 a.m. the next day to see it all through. And, um, and it's really exciting. You know, we'll do, we'll, I don't have the numbers in front of me. But we'll sell, you know, tens of thousands of items on a good 11-11 and uh, and see, you know, like 10 times a normal day's business in 24 hours, which is really cool. Yeah. Cool. So the, the China itself is always full of opportunities. You've been doing this for about for four years. And I always see a lot of entrepreneurs looking for new things like pivoting or 
uh, doing something something completely new or adding something to your existing business or customer base. What is your take? Is it like sticking your mm. stick to your lane, or is it uh, looking a little bit outside? How, how do you see Balpas progressing? Um, it's a bit of both, uh, and you know, depending on the on the business and the situation you're in. But we kind of went the opposite way, actually, um, because in the early days when we were brainstorming what we were trying to do, we we really were. We had we had much broader ideas. We were like, we're going to start with shopping, and we're going to make shopping for expats easy in China. But then, you know, we can add a we can kind of go sideways horizontally and introduce a service for like finding apartments. And maybe we'll partner with one of those companies to get a database. We could uh, make an app for finding an AI and and, it, and or for like finding roommates or for knowing you know the public bus routes. All we basically were like, we'll solve every expat problem there is, and then we'll we'll make it a hub and then we'll take that to other countries where lots of expats go and what we what we soon realized was that just solving the one problem is difficult enough and and there's so much deeper you can go as far as making that you know making that solution better and staying ahead of potential competitors so in you know we we quickly dismissed trying to do really what what essentially would be new businesses and just focus on being really good at this one business um, and make you know those first few customers really happy, and then see it grow from there. Um, and now it's more about expanding our our market. And so um, you know the the first three years, like the first year was just build it and they will come. Right? Build it as fast as you can. Don't make anything perfect. Just just make it functional. Um, and then the second year was build the team. Right now that you got the sales and and build flesh out the processes right learn how to be more efficient and then year three was take all that knowledge and rebuild the whole thing from the ground up you know and that's not something you always want to do but for us because of the first version of the platform we built without any future knowledge of how we were really going to operate um we knew we could optimize so much right we could make our team twice as efficient um and make their job so much easier and rebuild it so that it could scale Right, so we spent over a year recoding the entire platform, back end and front end. Um, and after we launched that, it was like, all right, now we're stable. Now we can we can add new things on top more easily. Now let's focus on scale. So for us, that that means um, you know trying to expand internationally. And and there's so much involved in that that it you know we don't want to spread ourselves too thin and we keep our team lightweight. But uh, I'll just quickly add though that we we did add some other services. Like we have a a team uh, called our business services team. And so we actually, uh, last year, we started helping expats register their own companies. Um, you know, we've got like a licensed visa agent uh, in-house as well. So we help them get their visas. We've got an accountant so we can help them set up their company bank accounts and do their ta- learn how to do their taxes. We help people set up stores on Taobao and then through Baopals. Um, we help them learn how we operated our WeChat account. Um, and so, yeah, so we just figured we might as well start sharing the knowledge we've gained. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's like a side project, um, you know, and we're able to we have, you know, the resources to, to manage that too. Yeah, I think there are two things that really stand out uh, just listening to your story is that, uh, of course, the business services, not just because you want to earn money, but also you want to give back to other startups. You're heavily involved in the startup industry, in, in, at least in Shanghai. 
So actually gives you, you become a platform and also almost an influencer for them mm. to find their way on chasing their dream and making that a little bit more comfortable, I would say. That's the fun part, you know, it's just, we're really, really fortunate to be where we're at, yeah. right? I mean, you see, you see a lot of, a lot of that entrepreneur spirit in, in China and in Shanghai as well, but you also see a lot of people struggling um, and they're just not sure how to kind of get over the hump, yeah. right? Maybe maybe their idea wasn't quite right and they just haven't been able to get the right feedback um, or maybe they, they're just having trouble reaching the market or maybe they're too late. Um, whatever their, their issues are, you know, I mean, I, entrepreneurship is, it's changed my life and, and it's something that I think the world, you know, always needs to encourage. And I think, uh, I think there's a lot of encouragement for that in China, whether from, you know, the government, from co-working spaces and accelerators, or just from entrepreneurs, you know, encouraging each other. But I also think that there's a lot of bad advice out there and there's a lot of, sometimes there's a little too much support, you know, it's like, you you got an idea. You want to be an entrepreneur. All your friends and your your family and and other entrepreneurs, most of them, just want to tell you what you want to hear. Which is ah, that sounds yeah. great. You know, like yeah. go for it. I think it'll be cool. But when it comes down to it, you might spend all that time building that product, and then those people who told you it was great don't want to buy it, right? Um, and so it's hard to get you know real honest advice. And so you know when I when I talk to other entrepreneurs, I try to be brutally honest and I talk about you know, why our idea worked and why it was the right idea, because I had ideas in the past that didn't work, you know, um, and help people think about what they're, what problem they're trying to solve and also watch out for some of the mistakes that cost us a lot of time and money too. Yeah. Yeah. So that's definitely the first thing I like this. The, and the second part is that like you explained, it took you three years actually to come to a product that's scalable. And a lot of the brands and also companies entering China, they think the potential is huge. So therefore, and I'm doing very, I'm very big in my home country or wherever they're active. So therefore, I will also do great in China. So within a year, I will estimate this, this, mm -hmm. this, this, this. And I think a lot of people get disappointed by that because you have been working with your with the two co-founders, with the three of you, day and night, basically for three years to build a tech solution that's scalable to market and also to look outside. So that took three years. Mm. And if you look at, um, of course, you have limited resources in the, from the beginning. Um, but even if you are a big brand with resources, it doesn't mean anything. It still is going to be in the work, mm -hmm. tweaking, finding the right way, doing a, like a really easy way just to find your target audience, yeah. connect with them. And then make the investment and make the jump and go or go all in, and that mm -hmm. will. It's going to take a few years. It's not yeah. a few months. Yeah, it's a marathon, right? It's a marathon, and we also were, you know, we're very ambitious from the beginning, and our our projections were, you know, through the roof as well. Um, and it's much easier to grow fast in the beginning if you have a unique, you know, product or service. Um, but you know, scaling up from there is is, is something else entirely, right? Um, and so you have to make sure that you are standing out and that you are making your customers happy. Um, and then you also have to be patient too. I mean, we tried to speed things up by, you know, adding more tech people on our team. And sometimes that just complicates things more because, you know, tech people, they're in some ways they're artists, right? And they, when they're writing code, it's like, you know, they're, they're making a work of art and, and it's a bit subjective and they have different standards, ways of doing things. And sometimes it's hard to you know, get multiple coders working on the same thing at an efficient uh, pace. 
you know, sometimes it's better to just have one person who's like, all right, this, you're handling this. This is your baby. Um, so we're just going to let you go. And if you aren't sure how it's supposed to be, you ask us, otherwise we'll leave you alone. And so our, our tech team has actually shrunk a bit. Um, but productivity is, is really solid. And, and we learned that by having the right sort of, um, you know, project management in place, you really maximize the, the output. It took us, I mean, it also took us a couple of years just to, to teach ourselves. I mean, my co-founders and I to teach ourselves how to properly manage a tech team and keep track of all the hundreds of ideas and prioritize it and, um, and test properly and, you know, get things going step by step. So, yeah, I mean, we probably could have moved a bit faster if we had had that experience, but I wouldn't really trade anything because the amount you learn from building a company from scratch and, and taking it upon yourself to learn the roles, um, you know, is such a valuable experience and, and a fun experience too. It's a journey, right? Yeah. So just, yeah, as a closing question, we have this opening tune in our podcast and it's about learning from war stories mm -hmm. about people in China. So do you have some, some war story that stands out in the 12 years that you've been here? Oof, wow. You know, some of the, there are some stories that may never see the light of day, <laughs> um, you know, because the, whether, whether they involved, you know, confidential info or we've signed an, you know, an, an agreement in order to, to just deal with it as best we can. Um, so there may be some things that come to mind that I can't, just a couple things, you know. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I think... I think in the it depends on the stage of the company. We had different battles that we had to fight at different times. You know, I mentioned that the first version was built very quickly. We were a very small team. Um, you know, and that and there were times when uh, the site would just crash, um, and sometimes it would crash at like midnight, right? And and for the first year, I just I had a hard time sleeping because I would. I would wake up and just have to check the website and make sure it's still live, you know? And there were times where, you know, I, me or, or Charlie would be banging on Tyler's door saying, man, the site's down. The site is down. Go on, get up. Like, shake it away. We need your help because he was the only one who could fix things, right? So um, that was the type of battle we faced uh, in those days. And then we, we also were quite scared that what we were doing, uh, you know, might not be allowed by Alibaba, by the government. We, you know, we, we couldn't spend the money to have a, you know, a lawyer tell us what we were doing was okay. We couldn't, we couldn't, you know, make sure that everything we were doing was by the book. We had to sort of gamble and just build the thing, mm -hmm. um, and do, you know, do as best we could. So there were some scares there and, 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 you know, there, there were some scares that we might get cut off. Um, but, About a year and a half in, we actually got contacted by Alibaba finally, and they sent they sent a few people from Hangzhou to meet with us, and somebody else invited us for a tour of their campus, and that was a huge sigh of relief, um, you know. So we knew that we were kind of okay on that front, and we could keep moving forward. Um, not long after that, another battle happened. We started seeing uh, uh, one or two copycat websites. Mm -hmm. One Russian website just completely copied us. I mean, logo and everything, and. They were just taking all of our CSS code and just putting it on their site. And we were like, what are you guys doing? Like, so, you know, then we had to look into like trademarking our stuff and, you know, sending like cease and desist orders to a couple of websites. Um, but, you know, we found at the end of the day, they never went anywhere, those copycats and imitations the best form of flattery. Right. So, um, yeah. So I think, you know, there's been roller coasters, ups and downs, but I, I feel like the 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 main war for us is always just not to get complacent and to just think 
like what's next? All right. Like we're doing okay. You know, I don't have to work seven days a week anymore. Right. I've got, I've actually got a decent salary now, not like in the early days. Um, but how do we keep pushing this? You know, because that's how China is. You got to be like a shark, keep moving forward or die. Um, and, and it, it helps having, you know, co-founders that, that I'm really tight with and having a team that, you know, works really well together. Cool. Cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm, we, we met each other two years ago, I think, at a farewell party of Mac Sullivan, a friends of both of us. Right. Um, and already when, when we spoke to each other, I was very briefly with, uh, with a beer and it's like, I think I should do a podcast. If I'm going to have a podcast, I should get Jay on the show. <laughs> so I'm very happy we did. Yes, because uh, the conversation was really awesome. I hope it's very valuable. I think it's very valuable for, for our listeners about, uh, to get an understanding of running a company from startup to a more mature stage in China. So thanks a lot for sharing your story. Hey, my pleasure, man. It was a lot of fun. All right, cool. Let's keep in touch, okay? All right, Simon. Cheers. (laughs) Doing business in China is a complex world. You can quickly feel alone and lost in its maze. But don't worry. China Business Cast is here for you. Sign up for our newsletter and regular updates on our website at www.chinabusinesscast.com. Thanks for tuning in.